0: We're on team human positive infection by viruses of the heart and mind we may be socially distanced but our souls are connected as ever this is the moment we've been preparing for humanity's great choice between sustenance and destruction is being made right now join the side where everyone wins i'm douglas rushkoff and i'm on team human playing for team human today Former senior policy advisor to the Senate Budget Committee and author of Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly, Power, and Democracy, Matt Stoller.
1: But the whole point of America, to to boil down America, is that it's a contested. It's not one thing. And we can contest it and make it ours.
0: Matt is going to disinter the ground of neoliberalism, as well as the opportunity we have even now to reclaim democracy from the market. It's time to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Team Human is listener-sponsored. You can join us at teamhuman.fm and get free stuff, access to the upcoming Rushkoff archives of my conversations with luminaries from Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna to Harvey Pekar and even Nelson Mandela. We'll be putting early drafts of my books and unpublished essays and stories in there as well. You can also get access to our Discord discussion server. I mean, unless you've already had enough online discussions. I mean, for me, there's just too many, too many webinars, too many. And they're they're getting me um, some of the questions. They're getting me more inflamed, I think, than they used to. I used to really just breathe through things. I was doing a, uh, a webinar for a group that will remain nameless, and uh, I was talking a lot about uh, cooperatives and local currencies and really the way that we can use mutual aid now uh, to help recover from the financial devastation of the COVID crisis. And someone actually asked in the uh, Q&A session, they asked, Sure they they said those local currencies and those co-ops and they may work well in the wealthy progressive communities where people are educated enough to understand regenerative economics and all that stuff but but what about the inner city where they just want jobs and food on the table so this person they were they were trying to use a kind of a social signaling to accuse me of bringing in these elitist new economic ideas that are somehow an aspect of white privilege. And in doing so, they were casting City dwellers or, or inner city urban people, which is a euphemism for black people, as somehow uh, uh, economically unsophisticated that they were that they wouldn't be able to handle uh, co-ops and mutual aid, like they they didn't know. I mean, I. I didn't totally blast the person. I just mentioned really simply, well, you know, you might want to take a look at, you know, what the Black Panthers were doing or what the Philadelphia co-ops were doing in the 1960s and how they kind of invented what we now think of as the cooperative and cooperative schools and cooperative grocery stores and mutual aid societies. And the more I thought about it, the the more I I really wanted to start sharing the, the, I guess... Forgotten facts that, you know, Black Americans' use of of organized mutual aid wasn't some happy exception to Black powerlessness in the face of economic oppression. This was the the dominant narrative. It's the main thing, it's dating all the way back to the 1700s. Black Americans were forced to develop the most robust approach approaches we've seen to mutual aid and cooperative economics in history and and the rest of us are the ones who should be learning from those experiences right now as we look towards you know remaking our economy without the benefit of a of a fully functional federal government you know and these these stories they've been hidden because economic success in black communities usually leads to white jealousy which in turn inspires more oppression and pogroms and murder you know, And and just because co-ops and mutual aid sound communist to the uninformed is no reason why we can't begin finally to celebrate what civil rights activists were really uh, uh, strategically loath to talk about so they wouldn't get condemned as red on top of everything else. Well, right now, those solutions which may have been painted as red are, I would argue, our last best hope for recovery and there's a, a one particularly great book about this by Dr. Jessica Gordon Nembard called Collective Courage: A History of African American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. And in it, she looks at the whole history of black economic cooperativism which began kind of informally among slaves when they would, you know, just raise money to help purchase one another's freedom. And in a kind of a chain, then, the freed slave would go get money to then bring back and get other ones out. And, you know, she looks at everything, even the Underground Railroad, as a form of kind of collective knowledge, a a resource-sharing commons of knowledge. And you know she relies a lot on on W. E. B. Du account. He wrote a, a book called uh, *Economic Cooperation Among Negro Americans*, and he he chronicled all these stories about how slaves would share what little money they had in order to fund one another's funerals or medical expenses, and freed slaves who had no rights as citizens, they had to develop mutual aid societies. And I mean they were doing these as far back as 1787, where the participants would put in dues every month and then anyone who needed money would then take it out. It's a little bit like, um, I guess, what we now think of as insurance, where you have kind of a big pot to rely on if you crash your car or have a medical crisis, except it wasn't a big corporation taking money out or exploiting this. It was people recirculating the value as they went. Even uh, blacks who worked for whites, they would squirrel away their money you know, and save it in community banks, which would then finance uh, small farmers and small borrowers. And it's just, it was a whole different understanding of economics that really derived from the fact that they were cut off from what we would normally consider the the larger economy. They were doing basic circular economics. And the better they did with circular economics, reinvesting in one another's businesses and getting good Main Streets, the angrier the whites who had excluded them would become. You know, that's why we had, you know, the the famous, the white mob that that burned uh, 10,000 Greenville homes to the ground and killed hundreds of people. They went on the rampage because they didn't understand how black people with less capital and shut off from all opportunity could somehow get wealthier than they were, right? But to the, the blacks, the, the difference between kind of American rugged individualism and mutual aid was really explicit. There was a black journalist, George Samuel Schuyler, who would admonish these young entrepreneurs that, you know, instead of using these traditional competitive paths towards, you know, personal individual advancement, that they should engage in cooperative economics. And he's the one who founded the Young Negroes Cooperative League back in 1931 which was this affiliation of co-ops and buying clubs that would allow some kind of genuine uh, economic independence for black people to happen. And the more the black businesses were excluded and, and weren't allowed to participate in the broader economy, the more innovative and prosperous they became. So when segregation or, or other kind of legal exclusion prevented them from participating in mainstream markets, the black businesses, they would turn to one another and they ended up with much more resilient, locally grounded, and mutually supportive, sustainable business networks, right? So it's the cooperative economics developed by America's blacks was not some elitist, hippie, in the South, challenging white economic structures was punishable by by lynching and death. In, in the McCarthy era, the members of black cooperatives, they were labeled communist and they were jailed. So while they practiced cooperative economics, they certainly didn't talk about it or teach it to one another in, in open ways. So the strange, almost fringe benefit of widespread acceptance that black lives indeed do matter is that black ideas can reach the light of day. They are not a threat to America's collective prosperity. They are our surest path to mutual recovery, as we all face economic disenfranchisement under corporate welfare and corporate control. To find out more about the history of Black economic innovation in America, please do check out Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nembard's book, Collective Courage. I hope to have her as a guest later this summer. If you've been noticing lately, the choice of guests... I've been bringing onto Team Human, really follow my own journey as I'm trying to make sense of the world. And this week, I wanted to speak with Matt Stoller because I've been trying to make some historical and practical sense of how our government has just followed our economy down into this dark hole of extractive anti-human bondage. I mean, sometimes I wonder if neoliberalism is finally willing to consider that black lives matter as much as white ones because white lives and life itself doesn't really matter to a market system anyway. And that's the only system in charge. It doesn't care what white supremacists do or stop doing. But I digress. Matt Stoller was a senior policy advisor and budget analyst to the Senate Budget Committee. He also worked in the House of Representatives on financial policy, including uh, Dodd-Frank and helping at the Federal Reserve and throughout the foreclosure crisis. He wrote a book about monopolies called Goliath, and he spoke with me from his lockdown in D.C., I'm really interested, and I think listeners will be interested too, in you know how you kind of became who you are, like how do you get to be working in the you know the, as an advisor and budget analyst to the Senate budget committee? Is that by you know getting degrees in economics or i mean how did that how did that happen for you?
1: I had kind of a weird path. I started out as a blogger, then uh, I started to help develop some of the tools for online fundraising and organizing for candidates. And then eventually I went to work for a a Democrat in in Congress who was sort of sat more on the left. And he was put on the Financial Services Committee during the crisis. I was the only policy staffer he had hired. And so I said, well, I'll take that portfolio of thinking about the banking system. And then I had to learn about the banking system and the bailouts by really connecting with a whole set of frustrated people who had been in banking or who had been in policy over the last 30, 40 years. And then and that's kind of how I got my entrance into it. I've been in politics now for over 15 years. And we've really only seen mostly bad decisions made by policymakers. But you know, you look around America, there are nice things here. How did that happen, right? And I wanted to know, and so I, I did research, and the people, some of the people that taught me about finances when I was working on, on the Hill, uh, they were like, look, we were doing this in the 60s, and here's how we did it differently. And that turned me on to this whole tradition of, of anti-monopoly populism. It turns out there's this whole lost tradition in American political economy. My book focused on this congressman named Wright Patman, who was very famous for his day. He was in Congress from 1929 to 1976. And he really focused aggressively and successfully on constraining large banks and corporations and special interests, high interest rates, those kinds of things, really corporate power. But he ended up getting, I mean, as you cover, he ended up getting canceled. That's true. That's (laughs) actually, I think there's a culture of illiberalism on the progressive world right now. A lot of people think that's like a millennial thing, or they think that's because of, you know, certain norms on college campuses that are relatively recent. But I actually think it's Mostly related to the counterculture, and the counterculture of the 1960s, they are the ones who got who got Patman, and they are the they're corporatists, and they turned away from the traditional arrangement in the Democratic Party, which was to fight against concentrated corporate power. And so we have this corporatist world. We have different flavors of it. There are neoliberals. There's, there's sort of the Clintons. There's you know, then there's there's the sort of the left variant where the left is always obsessed with sort of the grassroots. You saw Bernie Sanders, and you saw the most conservative senator. They both voted for the CARES Act bailouts. So on on some basic level, the intellectual flaw uh, of not seeing challenging corporate power and concentrated financial power, not seeing that as foundational to democratic politics, I think that's a pretty pervasive intellectual problem, and right. it's not it's not isolated to the right. I mean, it's fundamental left as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, I became aware of this partly because I was, you know, studying the internet and saw the way the internet, which I thought was going to be this revival of distributed, bottom-up, anarcho-syndicalist cottage industries of kids in their basements with computers became just a few monopolies. So it kind of forced me to look back at the, sort of the economic operating system of corporate capitalism, where it came from, what it did. And then when Obama was becoming president and we saw all these pictures of him reading FDR. I thought, "Oh my gosh, we're going to get a new new deal. That something else is going to happen." But then he goes ahead and just pours money in on the top as if somehow giving more money to banks to lend money to corporations to build factories to give people jobs is going to somehow, you know, foster a better economy. I mean, and it was absurd, but I even started to wonder if getting people jobs was itself sort of a misdirected effort. You know, do people want stuff and people want work. Is is the problem of not enough jobs a problem that we don't have enough people to do all the work we need? Or is it really we don't have a way of justifying letting people have the stuff that's already in abundance?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're getting to some important questions. I mean, what Obama did is foundational to what we're doing now. You know, there's a lot of questions about why Obama handled the financial crisis the way that he did. And there was always this very unsatisfying left-wing argument that he was, you know, in the pocket of Wall Street. And I don't know him, but I know people around him. And I, I I didn't see bribery.
0: No, I don't see that either. I think he believed in what he was doing as economically responsible.
1: I think the other important piece is that Obama was representing the democratic party and it's not like it was just him millions of people loved him and loved what he was doing and democrats in congress believed in the same ideas so this isn't just about i mean obviously i think he had a lot of agency and power but obama's philosophy comes out of something called uh affluence the the politics of affluence that was what you're talking about, which is the difference between stuff and jobs, right? Basically, the first half of the 20th century, if you want to boil down the, the main, one of the main political fights, it was how do you ma- manage industrial power? And this was a global struggle. And in the Soviet Union, they said, well, you have this new industrial power of steel and these explosives and railroads and cars and chemicals. We're going to socialize that. We're going to put that in the hands of the state, and that was communism. And in the uh, Germany and Japan and Italy and other countries, they said we're going to have the the corporations take over the state and fuse with the state, and that's fascism, right? But we're going to co- we're going to centralize power in both communism and fascism. And then in the United States, we we figured out this kind of third path, which was we are going to displace the robber barons. And we are going to have public institutions, not socializing the power, but break, but decentralizing that power. So everybody gets a little bit of piece of property uh, and we're going to manage some of the larger network institutions by layering stakeholders in different ways. A kind of, update of checks and balances. But where we can, we're going to make sure that people have a little bit of property. We'll keep our banks pretty distributed and small, our farms, our retails, and stuff like that. And you're talking about property even. This is not universal basic income. This is assets. This is your 40 acres. No one ever washed a rented car type of deal, right? Right. Uh, This goes (laughs) back to to the Revolutionary War. You know, William Findlay and the, the whiskey re- rebels, you know, their attitude was that wealth in many hands is many checks. That's what William Finley mm-hmm. said. He was a rebel chair or, or congressman. And the idea there is the only fundamental way to prevent social corruption, corruption was they were obsessed with corruption, the revolutionary generation, was to make sure that everybody had a little bit, little piece of property so that, you know, yeah, you could be assholes to each other, but you couldn't ultimately have one person dominate. Uh, and you want to have lots of newspapers. You want to have lots of farms. You want to have lots of of, of artisans. You don't want to have them, the intermediaries controlling things because that's the way that you eliminate a republic. You know, you go back to a, a kingdom or a, a, an aristocracy. What they they didn't have the term, but a fascist right. Institution. And this is even even Adam Smith was writing about this. Adam Smith was. I mean, Adam Smith's the the Wealth of Nations right. was published in 1776. I mean, this was a transatlantic uh, intellectual struggle. I mean, America was born out of the moment of the enlightenment, right? And, and they knew this and they were, and this, this is the new dealers were talked talked about this in the 1930s. And I'm not saying the enlightenment was good or bad. I'm just saying that's what the, right. when the United States was formed as an institution, that's the first half of the 20th century, right? That battle over how to contain industrial power. And we fit it into our democracy imperfect as that may have been and was. And then in the 1950s, the plutocrats sort of strike back. Right. And they strike back on the right through, I think, what is an increasingly well understood story, which is the Chicago school, Milton Friedman, Robert Bork, those guys. But what I don't think is like particularly uh, acknowledged because it's embarrassing is that they also struck back through the left. And the people that they worked through were the new left. And this was B.C. Wright Mills, uh, but also more centrist types like uh, Richard Hofstadter, who's a historian, and then an economist named John Kenneth Galbraith. And John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a book called American Capitalism, 1952. Then he wrote another book called The Affluent Society. This was in 1958. He basically described a society where there was just an endless amount of, an endless bounty of goods and services and jobs. And the problem of inequality, the problem of, of robber barons, of joblessness, of poverty, of, scarcity had been solved, right. And it been solved by the monopoly corporation, which was a force of progress. He said that he said, a corporation has to have some element of monopoly for it to be progressive. I mean, he was a progressive, and he was on the left. And he has, in many ways, he structured how Nader thought about the world, he structured how the modern left thought about the world, he and Richard Hofstetter, they created this, this alternative history of America, in which they said that all those fights, in the first half of the 20th century, in the late 19th century, between farmers and merchants and railroad barons and stuff, that was all kind of uh, fictional. What was really happening is those farmers, the populists, uh, they had status anxiety because they were Anglo-Saxons. Huh. And they were really just worried about the polyglot culture. And they used railroads as a kind of proxy for their own nativism and anti-Semitism and xenophobia
0: that's so bizarre i mean because it's it, some ways it's a it's a weird mirror image of what um leftist politicians do with cultural
1: identity and well that's the point the point is is that they created it right it's not the mirror it's the same thing so hofstetter and galbraith created you know hashtag i'm with her it's just that that's that's how these ideas travel. So I remember reading what while back like Ezra Klein wrote this essay being like, you know, I read this guy fascinating work. This guy named John Kenneth Galbraith and <laughs> it's exactly right. He has all these ideas about how to deal with, you know, all of our like social problems. And I was it was really funny because it's like it's like somebody watches Casablanca and is like Casablanca, I mean, that's so cliched, all the phrases that they're using, you know, <laughs> it came from Casablanca.
0: Exactly. I took my daughter to a Tennessee Williams play and she's like, oh my God, these are all stereotypes. I'm like, they all came from him, for God's sake. But so people like me who only became conscious, like in the era of, say, Clinton, we look at Bill Clinton as saying, Oh my God, look how he took the Democratic Party and turned it all neoliberal. You're saying this is way, this is the 50s. This was the the ground was laid for this way before that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, Clinton did do that. I mean, like, like there's, there's always, you know, there is agency here. And the point is, is Clinton, when he was a college student and a young person, he had Galbraith on his shelf and was reading it, right? in the 1950s and 60s in and 70s, it would be hard to go into a college, a college kid's room and not find a Galbraith book. He had wrote a lot of books. They were beautifully written. They were, he was really famous. I don't know, you know, kind of like an intellectual Kim Kardashian type, like something, you know, he's just really like everybody knows him. Right. right. And had a massive impact on the way that people th- thought, but also in particular how the left thought. And the other thing about Galbraith is that he was really against the, the war in Vietnam. Before it was cool to be against the war in Vietnam. And that was a courageous stance to take. He was very close with the Kennedys. He was, you know, very close with the Democratic establishment. He was the Democratic establishment. And he flipped on the war in Vietnam before most, most did. And that, I think, built bought him a lot of credibility with the new left.
0: But in his philosophy, though, I mean, the economy has to keep growing right? It's sort of an original long boom, like the Wired magazine idea that the economy will keep growing forever and thus everyone will get rich.
1: If you think about socialism, not in the sense of of a specific way to structure resources, but in a, in a specific vision of history, as history has its own rules and logic that just inevitably unspools. And if you know those rules and logic, you can predict everything. Uh-huh. That idea that historians are scientists, that things are just inevitable, that's the way Galbraith saw the economy he said all of this stuff is inevitable corporate power is inevitable man has no agency over the character of his economic system and and actually Galbraith in the 19, late 1960s it was a very popular moment this called convergence theory which was the idea that the soviet model and the american model were basically not really different that the soviets had these large state owned companies and the united states had like general motors but they were basically the same thing and you know, democracy was kind of ornamental and irrelevant. What you need was what he called the technostructure, all this weird new agey crap. When you look at neoliberalism, neoliberalism, you know, you've heard the phrase, there is no alternative, right? That is another way of saying that history is inevitable and scientific, and you can just predict the rules and man has no agency. That's Galbraithian, right? Which it ultimately goes back to Marx in some ways, or Weber. It's very similar to the way that the chicago school people think about the world too because the chicago school people think all of the way that corporations operate that's all inevitable too they just happen to believe that like they have a different characterization of what society should look like but they both the galbraithian sort of statist left and the libertarian right believe in a world without power in a world in which everything is inevitable and they really have no place for democratic forces to structure resource allocation in markets.
0: And is that partly because they're accepting sort of centralized interest-based currency as just an economic given? Because I keep going back to the late Middle Ages, where you know, we had the beginnings of these local markets and people were using you know local market monies that would expire at the end of the day. And you know the invention of the chartered monopoly and the invention of central currency pretty much came at the same time as a way to stamp out that, that more circular or circulatory economic activity and to promote, you know, now everyone has to work a job for one of the chartered monopolies instead of having their own business. And everyone has to borrow money from the central treasury in order to do business and pay it back at interest. So we have to grow the economy and we've got to go take over other places and, and, and somehow find new growth. I think
1: what we saw with Clinton in the nineties and then Obama was a, an acceptance that they had very little agency over the character of an economic system, you know, and and also the the 1970s, the creation of neoliberalism that when they overthrew Wright-Patman, you know, that was Bill Clinton's generation, right? They hated the New Deal. They looked at the New Deal and the constraints that we had put on robber barons and they said, we don't like that because the left did this. Yes. The left did this? The left did this. Yes.
0: So this isn't just because I was always taught this is like the National Association of Manufacturers, you know, and this, the big, horrible companies doing it. When you,
1: when you stop thinking of yourself as a citizen and a producer, and you start thinking of yourself only as a consumer, then, you know, all of a sudden, a lot of the power that exists behind say, the supermarket shelf, right, it becomes irrelevant. So you don't care how the goods in the supermarket get to that shelf. All you care about is what those goods look like. And then all of a sudden you, uh, you have given up huge swaths of, the, of, of economic arrangements as part of politics. And that's what happened in the 1970s. Galbraith was very much about a consumer-focused kind of politics. Mostly the generation I'm talking about are the ones who grew up in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And they are the ones that started to really swing and take power in the 1970s and 1980s. When you're dealing with sort of today, what you're and and what happened with the financial crisis is that all of a sudden, you know, the the world of technocracy, right? The world of Bill Clinton and Obama uh, and the Democratic Party writ large and the left and the right, they all just looked at banks and corporations and they said that's all just part of nature, so they just do what they do and those are those are apolitical institutions managed by scientists bankers and economists like they look at economists it's like you go to get a PhD in economics in Chicago and then you can pontificate on anything I
0: know they think because you've got a derivative equation that this is somehow less mumbo-jumbo than than it started out as
1: right and that's a philosophy of just technocracy that's believing that's a, an anti-democratic view of the world I think philosophically, the financial crisis in 2008 really undermines the uh, basis of that neoliberal framework. Because all of a sudden, you know, you got someone like me, I mean, I was a neoliberal, I, that's what I, you know, I went to Harvard, I took economics, I believe in all this, right? Then I, I like the financial crisis happens. And it's like, oh, wait, what do you mean? There's a, there's a Economic crash that's happening because of banks. I thought banks were scientific and run by. I thought economists were were scientists, right? I didn't know the, these institutions are political. Now I, I'm am exaggerating a little bit. I wasn't that naive, but but that's I think broadly speaking, you know what you found with the Federal Reserve is like you had a bunch of people who were like, wait a second, our models don't include that the that banks could actually affect the macro economy. We don't have agents in our models. All we have are you know, the monetary transmission channel, everything just happens automatically. That's crazy. So they had no way to see what was happening in the economy. And that's a real challenge intellectually and ideologically and we're still kind of in that transition moment away from these really crazy philosophies which don't where you it doesn't matter where anything is made it doesn't matter what institutional details are the economy just produces an endless surfeit of goods and and services and wealth and jobs and it's like now all of a sudden we're just like wait no it doesn't and we have to get into the details but meanwhile it's like that whole tradition of anti-monopolism, which was really just the tradition of of looking at how we produce things and saying there's politics embedded there. Let's structure that politics in a democratic way. That whole tradition died. And there's some of us now that are trying to bring it back.
0: But we have to. We have to bring it back by by necessity. Because I started to feel like I was writing in the late 90s about this, that there were companies, some of them monopolies, that were almost cynically taking advantage of the fact that their businesses had become financialized. So- So you take someone like Jack Welch and that moment that he realized, and he talked about it to Harvard Business School, you know, that he realized that he was making less money making and selling a washing machine than he was lending money to the person to buy the washing machine. So he sold off his productive assets and moved those over to China and turned GE into more of a bank. And it's like, what is that? You know, so now GE has money, but What do they have? Where's the actual wealth of the company at that point? And I feel like that goes back to wealth of nations that we no longer have any wealth if all we have is a kind of spreadsheet monetary numbers
1: yeah and jack welch is a i mean he's a you know he, he's a really important political organizer of the corporate world how we define wealth is so uh, critical and i mean you can look at wealth and you can say you know a financier will look at a spreadsheet or a balance sheet or a, a bank account and say the zeros the number of zeros in that represent the wealth And they don't care if the factory is in China and they don't care if the factory is in Mexico or wherever. It's like, if you can make air conditioners in China and sell them for, you know, get a higher profit margin, the number of zeros in that bank account is higher. Therefore, the wealth is higher, right? But another way to see wealth is the ability to make the air conditioner itself, right? The ability to make something that cools the air, makes life better, is something that people want. And that in itself is the wealth, Not and that the zeros in the bank account are an accounting representation of the wealth. And so if China has that factory, if that factory is in China, then China has the wealth. And if that factory is in the United States with all of the know-how of how to do it and the material to do it and the capacity to do it, then that wealth is in the United States. Jack Welch knew what he was doing. Like Jack Welch was the guy, he was a chemical engineer, so he knew how to build things. And he just said, okay, well the antitrust laws have changed so that now I'm, you know, I've got to organize, you know, the, the game differently. But a lot of the people today really, you know, in business have no idea that just the, the spreadsheet representation of the wealth isn't actually wealth or is only very partially what it means to, to, you know to actually be wealthy. But it's a big
0: problem. So right, so if the easiest way for people to make money right now is basically through private equity, which functions pretty much the way you describe it in the book, it sounds basically like the mob. You go in, you take over a bar or a restaurant, you use it to, you know, launder money and sell off its assets until it's gone. And so you tell the stories of like Toys R Us that they come in and they basically loot them until they go out of business and then move on and those people are billionaires
1: so those are the ones who get our respect i wrote a, a piece about this it's like the the scene in goodfellas where they they go and they they take a they own a restaurant and then they eventually you know they buy a bunch of stuff on credit take it out the back and sell it for you know half off but it doesn't matter cuz it's it's all cash right cuz they're the restaurant bought it on credit then they burn the restaurant down and get the insurance money right and what they're doing is they're stealing from the creditors so so they're they're stealing from the people that bought, that lent to the restaurant and they're stealing from from the people that insured the restaurant and that's what private equity is it's it's what's it's such such a bad name for it, private equity so Orwellian it's a leveraged <laughs> buyout business they find companies then they have those companies borrow a bunch of money and then they take that money and they hand it to the private equity partners and then they don't care what happens to that company. Maybe that company does really well and they sell it for a lot of money maybe it doesn't, maybe it goes bankrupt, but either way, they, they win because the people that are going to pay are the stakeholders in that company and the people that lent to that company. Right.
0: And the workers, because more often than not, right before they go out of business, they raid the uh, pension fund as well.
1: Yeah. And then they, and they lay off a bunch of workers so that they can, you know, liquidate the, the corporation. I mean, that's what happened with Toys R Us. So it's, it's, what it is, is they're sucking pools of cash and they're screwing different people in the, the hierarchy of credit claims, right? And the workers are the easiest ones to screw. The problem with that isn't that it's immoral. A lot of things are immoral. The problem with that is that it's stupid. It's that it's destructive. And that ultimately what ends up happening is you can't build medical equipment in a pandemic, right? right? And what is wealth if not the ability to build medical equipment when you need it? And we can't do that because we have an economy that's increasingly run by people that know how to steal in clever ways. You know, and I'm noticing more and more people like you who are in private equity or who are in, you know, they're a lot of ex-military or in technology. And they're angry and frustrated that this at the same things that you and I are, which are confusion of wealth and actual wealth. And I feel like there's a movement here. I I really do. I, I feel like there is enough frustration. I've talked to people who are in lots of different lines of business, and they're tired of getting screwed. It's not like a left wing or right wing thing. It's people that are in business that want business to be run more fairly so that they can go out and make money and not have to cheat people or not be cheated themselves. I feel like that's a movement. I just don't have a name for us. I know. It's it's funny
0: because I've been looking at that since around 1999. So I started calling it Competence. I was getting upset that the most competent people in business were being punished while the incompetent were being rewarded or that outsourcing competencies, you know, was being rewarded. And, and then I was looking, you know, I thought the UBI movement might do it. But, you know, universal basic income is very different than the sort of universal basic assets that you're talking about. I don't know that it's that either. And then, I mean, I, in my last book, I was calling it distributism, you know, going back to distributism and subsidiarity. And this idea of of lots of local small businesses. And I guess, and I was going to ask you, uh, because this is where I'm kind of stuck, is does the change happen the way someone like Carlotta Perez talks about it, that the digital extraction reaches its peak and then we get another, a new golden age of regulation like a New Deal? Or is politics just too stupid? and we can't really reform capitalism but we accept that it's an obsolete form that the New York Stock Exchange has been you know consumed by its own derivatives exchange and just ignore it and try to
1: create local business if you ignore politics politics won't ignore you there there is no ignoring it we have to do something about it through politics and i don't think anything is in- inevitable i don't believe that you know, where there's necessarily we have to wait for a giant collapse, nor do I believe that if there is a giant collapse, it will necessarily move things in a better direction or a direction that we care about. I think this is an organizing problem. If the t- two very successful political movements that I've seen in my lifetime are the, the Democratic Leadership Council, sort of the neoliberals in the Democratic Party in the 1980s, 90s and 2000s, and then the neoconservatives in the 90s and 2000s. And both of those networks were uh, They were networks. They were groups of people. They were marbled within a bunch of different institutions. They had policymakers and elected leaders. They also had donors and funders. They had intellectuals, people that wrote books. They had people in business. They had people in academia. And they had a shared set of values. They are definitely looking at the world and saying, this is crazy the way that we're organizing things. There are definitely some elected leaders who are sympathetic, some regulators that are sympathetic. There's a whole China space, so there's a whole national security frame. There's a bunch of military people and ex-military people that care about this. But there's just no name for it. I know. I was hoping Green New Deal would be it, but... No, but they just went all... They went, you know... It's so annoying what the, what the direction they went with that.
0: Which is a shame because Green New Deal was such a a unifying idea. It's like even wealthy people got to live on this planet, you know,
1: <laughs> You could have just gone to military contractors and, and people like that, you know, manufacturers who are frustrated at all the offshoring and said, guys, green new deal just also just means making things here. Right? right. And they would have been like, Oh, okay. Well that, you know, some of them would have been like, I don't like you, you're liberal, but like some of them would have been like, Oh, okay. So you're saying that, I, that I, you want to protect American manufacturing. I'm good with that. Yeah.
0: There's a Trumpian agenda in there, which bringing manufacturing back home and-
1: Because uh, when you move, when you have to move large large amounts of stuff, it emits carbon and we don't want that.
0: And it costs more money. It, I keep talking about how we fish for shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico, ship it all the way to China to be deshelled, and ship it back to the US to eat as food. That can't be the most efficient way to do this.
1: The shrimpers are, are a good example. They're a very right-wing group, but they actually have- you know they're populists, right? And they, mm-hmm. they they don't have to be on the side of like Wall Street predators, but they and they're not. I mean, if you talk to them, they're not particularly. They don't like you know the financiers and stuff, but they are part of that coalition because they don't. There's no alternative out there for them that represents what they want, which is they want to go out and find shrimp and sell it for a good price. Like that's what they really want. And, and like right. you know, there's nothing inherently like super conservative about that or super liberal or whatever. It's just like. That, that's what they want. That's what a lot of people want. I mean, the, the they, they want to be able to just do what they do and be treated reasonably well. And they don't mind, you know, they want everybody, if we have to sacrifice, they want everybody to sacrifice. And, and they don't believe that the, you know, whatever party they're a part of, they don't believe the other party. So there's huge gaps in trust. But there's, you know, this is just what I see all over. I want to come up with a name for people that are just like, we want to produce things, and sell things fairly and reasonably what you want is you want it to be baked into into business itself and say we want people that to to go out and to make money and to build things and to run businesses and do what they want in the context of an overall system a market system that forces people to treat each other fairly like and if you defraud someone else or if you use you know coercive market power in an abusive way that there will be legal repercussions for that and that way you you know that's a lot more like what it used to be except we had a you can't forget about that the the terrorist fascist system of jim crow embedded in this <laughs> much yeah. more egalitarian economic order but That's not inherent. No, they were they were
0: coincidental, but but they weren't uh, they weren't feeding one another.
1: I mean, you had you had racists on the populist side, but you also had anti racists on the populist side, and the bankers. You know, it's not like they were like into social justice themselves necessarily. So it's like it gets very complicated. But the point is, is that like I think if you if we are if we were able to create uh, like really bring out, I think the a movement that is starting to get to sort of move away, you know, from, I think a lot of the, the mistrust, right? The mistrust and the, the basic disinterest in details of business and institutions. We need a movement that's open-minded and curious and wants to know how to run things well. And that that's to your point about competence, but it's more than competence because competence is a, is it sort of, sort of seems like a neutral, a little bit of a neutral value, and you can be competent in many different things. It's more its more that the people that do the work should control the work.
0: Well, that was, I mean, it was where I ended throwing rocks at the Google bus, was calling for digital distributism, you right. know, to sort of, to, to retrieve the idea of distributism from Belloc and Chesterton, the idea that workers should own the means of production, rather than redistributing the spoils of capitalism. After the fact, we pre-distribute the means of production before the fact. Not that distributism is a, is a catchy word, but it's better than democratic
1: socialism. I don't love distributism because it's hard to say I'm a distributist. Yeah. Hard word to say, but the point is right. You know, I mean, I, I never liked the word democratic socialism in the first place, because what they're really trying to say is that they are, they want to get the like cool radical element of socialism, but then they want to like put democratic in front of it. So they don't have to deal with the legacy of socialism, which is about, nationalizing the means of production and it's very annoying and it's like this habit on the left to like come up with a word that sounds radical and scary and so that they can be cool and then when someone's like I don't like that radical and scary thing then say oh well that's not what it means and it's just like shut up you're just being Uh annoyed. You know what you were doing, right? <laughs> like, um, like you're just being manipulative. So right. there is a radicalism in America. It's just a radicalism of of the American Revolution, of the Civil War, of you know, of the populists. Um, and you can you can reach to that tradition. You don't have to go to Europe. I mean, democratic socialism is basically the tradition of post war. Um, European countries that we that new dealers imposed on them right after World War II. The U.S. rebuilt Europe and put together lots of political systems in concert with democratic allies within those countries, and that created a lot of the the politics of social democracy in Europe, or or emphasized it. So it's like weird to go over to Europe and import something a dumb name that is an un, like a basically alien to America that actually represents new deal populism. And why not just go to the stuff that's American, right? It's the same. It's a very similar concept, except that it's just, you know, you, you can put a flag pin on, you can be like rah, rah America and these ideas of egalitarianism and the enlightenment. I mean, why not just claim those values, right? Like that's, that's right. kind of where people are. You know, one way to see the American experiment is as that. It's not the only way. But the whole point of America, to the, to boil down America, is that it's a contested. It's not one thing. And we can contest it and make it ours.
0: Right. Do you see, because um, I've got a lot of um, listeners who are struggling with small businesses, whether they've got a, a bakery or a bike shop or a restaurant, um, and not just because of COVID, but because they're trying to function in a landscape that seems designed more to deliver interest to banks than to allow a small business to run at a sustainable level. Do you have a- any advice for them? It's it's so hard to manage a payroll and just to operate at a s- normal scaled local level without franchising and growing and building. Is there not that there's a secret formula, but do you see something coming back, whether it's guilds or apprenticeships or, you know, a three or four person business just seems so doomed right now? There's a lot of ways to
1: fix our business structures. I think co-ops are really useful. So uh, there are a lot of independent hardware stores. And the reason is because the central purchasing and distribution is done through a co-op. Right, through ACE or, yeah. You know, that's essentially a franchise, except it's a franchise owned by the franchisees. So you get the scale economics, but you also have the independent ownership. And in a lot of ways, you can look at private equity or you can look at monopolies as kind of a form of co-op that are run uh, for the benefit of financiers and manipulators.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Like what you can do is you can socialize the parts of these industrial structures that demand huge amounts of scale, so at and being a regulated monopoly is sort of a form of socialization um, or you can create competition or whatever, but basically you can find ways of distributing power. And I think that that's, it's, it's quite doable. Amazon as an institution is an amazing opportunity for all sorts of people to sell or to buy, but the way that they organize their business ends up undermining and, and interfering with the desire of all of these people to buy and sell from each other. So there are a number of laws that you could use to prevent Amazon from doing that. And then if you did that, you would have more of a situation like eBay, which I think is much more, it's a much healthier market where you have a whole bunch of people that are buying and selling who couldn't do that before. This is the original internet, right? Or this is the podcasting world or or like the craft beer world. It's like, you can have small businesses, you just have to build public policies that protect them and that prevent them from being dominated by monopolists
0: right well if you ever run for anything you've got my vote not that you should it's a nightmare but uh, hopefully you could someone uh, uh, someone who is the next waxman or somebody will have you whispering in their ear thanks for for being on tomb human and and most of all for for what you're doing and helping you know elucidate and bring some clarity and needed outrage at how kind of silly how silly we've been and how Sadly, the left is just as responsible for some of this as, uh, as the right.
1: Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate, you know, your time and, and thoughtful approach to, to thinking about these problems.
0: Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Matt Stoller. You can find out more about him and his book, Goliath, at mattstoller.substack.com. You can find out more about Matt and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm, where you can also become a subscriber and supporter of this show. Join members of the team like Alex Muir, Colette St. John, Nick Hurd, and Marcus Squirrel. And play with us on the Team Human Discord. Get free stuff and soon access to the Rushkoff archive of audio and video interviews, manuscripts, articles, and strange things never heard or seen by anyone but me, ride with Timothy Leary, arguments with John Barlow and Jaron Lanier, mushroom trips with Terence McKenna, a discussion with South African President Thabo Mbeki over whether Madonna is good or bad for South Africa's youth and more. Meanwhile, you can read written adaptations of my monologues as well as the entire Team Human Manifesto in weekly serialization at medium.com slash team-human. That's medium.com slash team-human. Or come to teamhuman.fm where you can find links to everything. Please stay safe, Stay cool. My advice is to find a couple of friends you can really trust and form a posse. Make some rules and really stick to them. Those of us who lived through the worst of AIDS and the STD crises learned how to communicate. Everyone's risk levels are compatible as long as we're honest with each other. I'll see you next week. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human our last best hope for peeps.